Welcome to episode 41 of the Animal Addicts podcast. On today's episode, Casey talks about a new discovery while I discuss an awesome dog breed. We also talk about some more favorites and learn about the most unique animal of the week we have had yet. Don't forget to follow us at Animal Addicts Podcast on Instagram and at Animal Addicts P on Twitter for links to the articles we discuss and pictures of all the animals we talk about. And now, let's jump into episode 41 of the Animal Addicts Podcast. episode 41 of the Animal Addicts Podcast. As always, we're your host, Sally. And Casey. And today we're going to talk about a whole new order of animals, which Casey explained to me is accurate because we have not discussed the orders of animals we're talking about today. That's not entirely true. For the most part, we haven't. Well, we, ha- we haven't made them a featured thing. We, we just did like side conversations about them. But one thing them. I'm talking, oh, you mean like not like Like in previous. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, one thing I'm talking about, we've definitely talked about before. Really? Yes. Oh. That one. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm thinking about the other cooler things. Okay, right. Anyway. Our like our picks and our and our yeah. animal of the week. Yeah, makes mm-hmm. sense. Anywho's, but um so what what have you been up to since last I saw you? You're very excited about whatever this Yes, is. because it's something I've okay, so like I took a systematics course last quarter and um basically what that part of what that is is discovering and describing new species and um studying how different species or higher levels of organism organization are related to each other. Okay. So like how beetles are related to other insects, stuff like that. Um, And then you can go into lower classifications, like how certain species are related to each other Mm -hmm. or how classes or different groups. It depends on what you're researching. And one of the things you have to do is you need, um, depending on the model you are using um, to determine how they are related um, you may have to rely on morphological features, like um, we have opposable thumbs. That's a characteristic of primates. Okay. That's how one way we can tell how we're related to other primates. And we have nails. Don't raccoons have opposable thumbs? Or are they just little fingers are just really... They're just... They have weird fingers. Yeah. Because okay. they, it's more like a pseudo-thumb, kind of like um, pandas, except it's an actual digit, as opposed where in pandas it's in a large bone in their wrist. That's weird. Okay. Yes, it's called a pseudo... It's a pseudo-thumb. But can they use it like a thumb? Kind of, but not really, because our thumb is it's like this. Theirs okay, is yeah. just literally like a yeah, few so bones like that are enlarged. You can, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, back to it. It gets sorry. the job done. Sorry. It it's just all... made me think of it because, like, the way that raccoons, I guess mice hold things, too, though, that way. They're yeah. hands. Continue. Mm-hmm. Yes. So another way to determine to make um, these, how animals are related, these are called phylogenies, hence okay. phylogenetic tree. Um, yep. Um, is through genetics and you can use like um, one thing bioinformatics bioinformatics is involved with this look I know that word yes Uh, (laughs) um, there can you can either use what's called the nuclear genome that is your DNA that's in the nucleus then there's the mitochondrial genome those are also called mitogenomes Um, those are easier to sequence um, and they're not as choppy usually because they're simpler kind of organisms in your cell because that gets into more yeah i'm not going into that now maybe another time okay but anyway sometimes you will 
decide to look at a certain gene. Like one of my professors, he does, um, he studies phylogenies of mammals. And one of the things that he's used before is the enam gene, which is the gene that codes for the protein enamelin, which is what makes up your teeth. Okay. So, but when you do that, there can be changes. You make comparisons, and then you do other models to determine um, how how closely related certain organisms are to each other. And um, how you do that is you have to align the sequences, which is not as simple as it sounds because several things can happen, not just with different parts of the nucleotide bases changing, but there can also be insertions of new nucleotides and then deletions of other nucleotides, so you can, so you can have gaps between them. And it's like, it gets more complicated than just looking and trying to find similarities and line them up. You know, I miss the days of just drawing a little DNA. <laughs> what is it, the double helix? Thing? Yes. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> Ugh, it's rough. Yep. But anyways, so I learned how you do... One of the ways is through a pairwise comparison, which is like you will get the ex best possible answer for the alignment. And basically how that works is you have a matrix okay. and you have the sequence of the gene and you put it on each side of the matrix. And then there's a scoring system that you start from, depending on which model for the alignment you are using, you start from one part of the matrix, then you work your way down and see if there's matches um, and then score it or mismatches and you do it's very complicated yeah and then it's also a lot of math yeah there's math involved um and then you and it's not fun dnd math <laughs> i don't know about dnd so i don't know if that is fun but i find it interesting we have to put we have to do one shot or i have to have yeah. you just come for like one game sometime yeah but um then you um like try to find the best score for that part of the matrix and that can do, depend on if it depend, it varies if you're looking at like either protein or DNA sequences, okay. but um, then you like go with the best score on whether or not you go like diagonally, horizontal, or vertical as you're moving through the matrix. Because if you're going diagonally, then it's just one nucleotide matches to the next one and then just goes on. But then if you go like horizontal or vertical on the matrix, then there's going to be a gap in one of the sequences. I'm not going to lie, none of that makes sense to me. I know, but <laughs> that's something I learned. Okay. And it's going to be very complicated to explain Yeah. <laughs> if I can't write it out and show it to people. Uh, but that is a limited um, way of doing sequence alignments because, one, you can do this with computers, but it would take forever because <laughs> okay. when you're doing, like, um, whatever you're studying, you can do a large variety of things with um, sequence alignments, my particular interest is more in phylogenies, but another way is um, through the NCBI website um, has a um, database where you can, it does what's called a heuristic search of bioinformatics yes. database thing? Yep, okay. that's one of them. And um, basically you put, you determine um, what organism you're looking at, you find the sequence, and then you'll find a subset of that gene and put that sequence into your search. And then if it's DNA, it will look for exact matches for your alignments. And this is heuristic search, so it's not guaranteed to get the best possible so why choice. why would you be doing this? Because you need to be able to have these alignments to determine how much difference there is um, between the gene in order to determine whether or not they're closely related. 
And if there's going to be more differences, then they're more distantly related. <laughs> no, because like there's organisms that are cryptic species where they look exactly the same, but they're different species and can't interbreed. Hmm. Several beetles are like that, and there's some organisms you have to look at microscopic features in order to determine if they're different species. You know, I used to think I liked biology. <laughs> it's cool. It's fun. I don't like this part of biology. <laughs> it's fun. I like it. That's good. <laughs> I'm happy that you like it since you're yeah. a bio major. Yeah. But um, it gets different between um, DNA and um, when you're looking at proteins. Because with DNA, it has to be exact matches because there's only four possible <laughs> um, nucleotides when you're looking at a sequence. Whereas there's 20 different amino acids. So then that gives you a score on how similar the sequence is. Whereas if you're doing DNA, it has to be an exact match. So if they're really close, does that mean they're a species who can interbreed? Or I guess it's that they're related. It potentially, but that gets more complicated. And that can kind of deal with other areas that I am learning about, like chromosomes. Because um, here's a fun fact. Here's one of the, um, in my opinion, one of the best pieces of evidence for evolution, which is a well-established fact, um, is chromosome number two in humans. Because if you look us compared to the great apes, yeah. we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Okay. Great apes have 24. Okay. So if we share a common ancestry, then there's a couple of different things that could happen. Either there was a deletion of one of our chromosomes. Okay. Which would be awful and we, not possible we would die. Okay. <laughs> Another possibility would be that two chromosomes fused into one. Oh. And, um, or... There was no common ancestry, and evolution is debunked. And if you look at chromosome number two, there's um, different regions of the chromosome you can identify with certain staining techniques. Okay. And you can look at um, parts of the chromosome called centromeres, which are in the middle of the chromosome in some organisms. Mm -hmm. And you can identify that when you dye these chromosomes. And it will be in the, just one spot in the center of the chromosome. When you do that to chromosome two, you find two centromeres oh. from the fusion event. And then there's another part of the chromosome. Event. Yeah. That's called a telomere. Those are at the ends. And on chromosome number two, in the middle, there is a telomere that's inactive. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So that's one of the reasons why humans would not be able to interbreed with chimps or bonobos. Don't try it. <laughs> but yeah. And... Um, when you do these like sequence alignments to compare organisms, you can find out new organisms are actually belonging to a different group than what we initially thought. One example of this would be termites. For the longest time, they were in their own order called Isoptera. Mm -hmm. We have genetic evidence now that they do not belong in their own order or actually belong in the order Blattodia. That is cockroaches. Termites are highly specialized cockroaches. All right. Yes. And another one that's more recent and requires more research involves fleas, because they're also in their own order. But um, recent studies have found that their closest extent relative are scorpion flies. That <laughs> is the stuff of yeah. nightmares. Scorpions should not fly. <laughs> they're not... They don't have an actual stinger. Um, the male's Ediagus is modified, so it kind of looks like a scorpion. <laughs> yes, it is. Turn that, okay. And it looks 
resembles a scorpion's tail. Hence the name Literally Scorpion Fly. His dick is out, and that's why it looks like yes. a scorpion. That's kind of funny. Yeah. But yeah, and you look at them, they're nothing I like. First off, fleas don't have wings anymore. Okay. Um, Because they jump, jump onto you. And yeah. parasitic animals tend to lose modes of mobility. Um, like all the parasitic mites, they don't have um, wings anymore. And so, and then you look at a scorpion fly, which has wings. And then it has this long snout. <laughs> um, snout. Um, it's its mouth. Because these guys are, a lot of them are scavengers and will eat inside the body cavities of other insects. But, but yeah. Nope, don't like And it. that's, it helps you, like, understand the evolution of organisms and stuff like that, which I find particularly interesting. I think evolution, how things evolve from other things, is interesting. Mm-hmm. But when you're breaking it down that much, I'm just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. nope. No, thanks. I just know this about this animal. I know this about this animal. But yeah, so. because I had to read uh, quite a few papers when in my systematics class, and a lot of they were all on, they all used um, DNA as their basis for their phylogenies. And they mentioned about doing, using different models for sequence alignments. And it's like, I don't know how to do sequence alignments. <laughs> now I do know how they do it. Yay! I'm hoping that's an upper division thing because that'd be like terrifying. <laughs> like I'm gonna be a biology major. Yeah, when you... me shiny and brand new. Oh, forget this. Yeah, when you get into upper division biology courses, you learn a lot of what you were taught is a lie. <laughs> like the replication of chromosomes is not just like the double helix duplication thing that we learn in high school and lower classes. Yeah. Because, like, there's a thing called epigenetics where there's proteins that regulate the expression of genes, and it's like these not only have to be replicated on when the cells are divided, but these actually are inheritable to your offspring. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, how does that happen if it's just the DNA being duplicated? It turns out the proteins get broken down to smaller subunits and attached to the new strand and stay on the template when it's getting duplicated. It's very interesting. Templates for people or animals. Because <laughs> animals were for animals. Okay. Also well, plants. That's a and lot. other things. That's true. Living things. Yes. Um That's cool. It's, I find it interesting because I'm a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> You're a nerd in different ways, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but we have some crossover. Mm. Um okay, well, that was a lot. I'm tired <laughs> from that. Okay. Ugh. It's like last time. Okay. Um, anyway, speaking of last time, though, um, I we took too long talking about surgeries and stuff, so I'm going to go back to something I was going to talk about last time, which is I sort of have new things for people. Um, <laughs> so when I was binging various things on TV, uh, one day was Earth Day, and on that Geo, they had... Um, I could uh, not watch any of the documentaries that are typically on Earth Day because... I was stuck doing schoolwork. I was very upset. Well, I was laid up, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I could watch anything. Um, and I didn't want to cry, so there were some, like, TV shows and stuff I watch. Like, WandaVision I've heard is really good, but, like, sad. And I'm like, I don't want to cry because I don't want to upset things. So I don't want anything that's, which is dangerous I, with nature documentaries for me. But anyway, I love sad stuff, though. I don't want to. It's true, powerful be, emotion. I don't want to be crying with all of this. <laughs> anyway. So, oh, yeah. Good point. Day, yeah, I, I'm trying to avoid anything that's going to make me cry so I don't have issues um, until this is fully healed. But anyway, I binged um, a few of the national parks, which I had started watching at one point, 
and I didn't really like the narrator, but for some reason, this way was better. Um, I obviously came into the first one, Olympic National Park, mm-hmm. um, which I believe was in Washington. I probably should know that. I feel like they didn't say where it was. Pretty <laughs> anyway, sure it's in Washington. I think it's in Washington. And I'm pretty sure it's, I think I've been there when I was a small child and I was so well-traveled and can't mm-hmm. remember anything. But anyway, um, and obviously I came into that late because I missed, um, I'm just going to say the moral of that one is that orcas are, de- I'm sorry, transient orcas are <laughs> awful assets. Um, so I came into that one late, obviously, because they showed orcas being dicks and uh. killing a gray whale calf. But um, but the very beginning, I can't. And this not... was near Olympic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Normally they're hunting gray whales over in uh, Monterey. No, it was on their way up huh. to the Bering Sea for a feeding ground. Yeah, during and that migration, was... they don't feed at all. Yeah, and it was <laughs> one mom and her calf, so she couldn't defend it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so but because I I, I was late to it, it starts off spoilers, not even like a minute into it with them torturing the seals and flipping them around and stuff. I'm just like, mm-hmm. just just, just drown it. Just drown it fast. They need to avoid getting hurt. No, it's a seal. You bite it. <laughs> you bite it. It can bite back. You bite it in the middle. Or you go after the head, and then you've destroyed the teeth, and you're good. Anyway, um, so they're assholes. Transient orcas are assholes. The the native, not native, but the natives to, I guess, the locals. <laughs> I think it's the resident is how yeah, they describe it. Yeah, the resident. They're cool. They just eat like fish. You're just going to go get a mouthful of fish. You're going to bite it. It's going to die. Yep. It's fine. There's at least four populations of residents. So I don't dislike all orcas. <laughs> I dislike transient orcas and whichever ones are assholes to everything and just basically kill all marine animal, mammals. And then they show, like, seals hiding from them and then the sea lions and everything. Um, there's also a lot of birds are dicks. Bald eagles are kind of dicks. Um, <laughs> are you talking about their offspring? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of birds who will often will kill their yeah. offspring. That happens a lot, which is also <laughs> douchey, but, like, you know. Um, I saw a, actually saw a video not too long ago where a bald eagle, it was a video camp, I think on explore.org. Yeah. Um, and while I was sleeping at night, a great horned owl came in and just hit it. Just smacks it? Yeah, it like takes its clowns and smacks it and a then flies away. An adult. An adult? That's hilarious. Yes. You get it, owl. <laughs> I am with you. Anyway, uh, um, so yeah, they're, they're pretty bad. They're, I forget what kind of bird it is now. But they mm. nest there, and the adults can't do anything. And the, the, the eagles, so then they show, there's just a lot of death, okay? The Olympic one, there's just a lot of death. But they don't follow, it doesn't really fit my criteria because they don't follow a family. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to say. So rating these is kind of difficult. But there's a lot of death in the Olympic one. And the bald eagles go, and they kill the adults. They kill the chicks, and you watch them, like, take off with the chicks and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, God. Was it another bird of prey? Or I don't think it's a bird of prey, no. Interesting. I forget what they're called, hmm. but they nest up on like the cliffs during this time of year, and they're going, they're migrating somewhere. I forget where. Hmm. But anyway, because like some, actually several animals will kill offspring of other species, not because they'll eat them, but get rid of competition. Yeah, competition, like yeah. cheetahs and lions. Yeah, wolves um, do it as well. Yeah. Yep. They'll also do it to other wolves. That happens with a lot of animals, like yes. bears and lions. And most often. It's the females that do it. Yeah, they're pretty vicious. Yeah, because the female will know if it's their cubs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, these birds did not do well. And obviously all the things that the orcas go after did not do well. However, 
interesting. Just pointing out that animals we've talked about are featured on here, like the ochre sea star, which oh, yeah. they also talk about it injecting its stomach. One of my favorites. Yeah. And um, what was the other one that was in there? It was ochre sea star and the... Um, Oh, the ratfish, <laughs> which is so funny because, like, we did the ratfish not long ago. Yeah. I'd never heard of it before, and now suddenly they're featuring all these ratfish. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's crazy. So I was like, hey, our animals. Was it that species that we talked about or a different one? I don't remember. Ah. It's the, whatever the picture I put up, though, hopefully I put up the right picture because that matched. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were just talking about how they haven't, you know, changed in mm-hmm. forever and yet. Yeah, yeah. Anywho. Um, but I, I do feel like I should read this verbatim because my notes are ridiculous. <laughs> um, we're talking a little bit about some others, but I basically wrote, um, Olympic Park featured ratfish and sea star, woohoo, and asshole transient killer whales, right off the bat being assholes, as well as later, the resident orcas are okay. <laughs> <laughs> Olympic is pretty rough. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, pretty rough with killing all over. But you're not following individuals. Because somebody not too bad on the killing. <laughs> kind of follow three bobcats. <laughs> um, and they're fine. Uh. Grand Canyon, you best prairie dogs. So getting into those, um, moving from Olympic, I if I had to rate it, it's kind of in between a not safe and a mostly safe mm-hmm. because you're not following individuals, but there's a lot of death. Yeah. So it's it's kind of rough. Um, the I just note on your comment about the narrator. Yeah. I have found that I've watched so many David Attenborough documentaries that that's my expectation for like good documentaries, and I, it's like nobody, very few reach it. I don't know. Even a lot of actors who do it, I'm fine with it. It's just that Morgan Freeman can narrate all the things. Um, but I, I, just, I, just don't, I just don't like the way they, just the way they do it. It's just weird. I don't like it. Mm. Anyway, but Yosemite's not too bad. So yeah. there's not, a, I mean, there's obviously death in all of them, but it's not too bad. And they kind of follow these three bobcats and they do well. But that's the, that's the closest thing to following a family that they do the whole time. Um, I don't remember anything terrible in Yosemite. Also, it just makes me want to go to Yosemite because it's mm-hmm. beautiful. And I'm so mad that I didn't take a picture of it when I was flying back from Alaska. And I look, looked at the plane. I'm like, that's odd landscape. I was like, that looks like, is that half done? Oh, shit, we're flying yeah. over Yosemite. I love um, Yosemite. I'm jealous. I want to yeah. go. I, my mom, I remember last time we went, my mom was kind of upset because she found out that because there's this place called Mirror Lake. Yeah. It's a area where you can see, like, it mirrors half dome and everything around it and my mom's upset that it's going away Mm -hmm. um because it's a man-made lake it's not really a lake but it's man-made in order for that mirror effect Mm -hmm. and they're just trying to let nature restore and leaving that alone and Mm -hmm. so eventually it will go away okay (laughs) but yeah so you know somebody um was, was pretty good not too bad i would give that one at least a mostly safe if not a safe and then um, Grand Canyon, I didn't get it totally finished because I was also in and out having to deal with stuff, so I didn't see everything. But the Grand Canyon, they talk about the condors and that they're all tagged now mm-hmm. and everything. Um, San Diego Zoo. Woo-woo. Anyway. And LA Zoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, that, one's, that one's not too bad either. I don't think there was too many... I don't think that one was too bad. Again, with eagles trying to kill birds. But ravens are like, I will pester you to leave my babies alone. So, good job, ravens. Um, and then, I, you know what, though? They didn't show any elk. <laughs> I just realized really? that. There's elk there? I don't know. Yes, I talked about it. 
because I thought it was a statue and it moved. And oh, yeah, everywhere. I do remember now. They're everywhere. And I just realized they didn't talk about it, but they were mostly focusing inside the canyon more than up top. I remember there's somewhere in California my mom wants to go because there's like herds of some deer species I can't remember. Hmm. I'm very concerned if we ever do because my mom like keeps getting, whenever we see a deer, she gets closer to no. it. And it's like, thankfully it's California mule deer, so it's not like these huge ones, but yeah. it's like, get away, yeah. <laughs> don't do it. My dad did that when we were in Europe, trying to uh, get a swan. I'm like, those are nasty. And you're getting close, I don't remember if had babies, it was you just getting closer, but mm-hmm. you're gonna piss it off, it's gonna attack you, it's gonna yeah. be awful. Anyway, but um, yeah, so Yosemite, at least mostly safe. And then Grand Canyon, I think is mostly safe as well. They also, <laughs> some of the things are just funny because they're talking about how humans will go on, well, you know, the water rafting stuff. And it's like, people drown here or die here all the time. <laughs> it just entertains me. Anyway. But, um, but yeah, they feature like bighorn sheep and other things. Um, mm-hmm. And then the like bison and buffalo that aren't really because they're partially bred with. Yeah, they're hybrids. Yeah, with cows. Yeah, um, the Bronx Zoo and a few others have this program where they're trying to breed pure bison. Yeah. So, anywho, those are kind of interesting. Um, I guess just on Earth Day, it like kind of worked for me because it was also like a marathon. So I was just like, okay. And they're all places I want to go. Been to the Grand Canyon but I want to go to other places. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch more. I will watch them eventually. But as far as I can say, as of right now, Olympic, I'm going to give it not safe. They don't kill the families you're watching, but we're just going to say not safe as far <laughs> as these go. This is a different category, I guess, because it's not like the Disney ones. Not safe, Yosemite. I would say Yosemite and Greg Canyon mostly safe. Oh, that's where the Yip Fest comes in. Mm-hmm. Adorable kit foxes. Oh, yeah. They go and kill the prairie dogs, which that's for the prairie dogs, so they just can't get away because mm-hmm. the foxes just dig in the bur- burrows and get them. But after it kills one, they do this crazy yip fest. And they're like, it's debated why. It's so weird. They like, they do this like yip, and they like throw their arms up. It's so weird. It's crazy. And then they all are doing it. I'm like, what? And they're saying like it's debated about if it's like that they're testing their emergency broadcast system. Or that they, they all alert each other when they're in danger. Like a lot of animals do. And then um, they're testing their emergency broadcasts, or they're like mourning the dead, or they're like saying a thank you to the prairie dog gods. <laughs> like, it's so weird, but it's crazy because they just yeah. like throw their feet up and like kind of arch their back and like, yep, and it's, it's mm-hmm. crazy anyway. Yep. Prairie dogs are also interesting in that they're one of the animals being studied, studied for potential candidate of animals that use language. Interesting. Yes, because... Oh, yeah, I think they were saying that, too. They yeah. had words for different kinds of predators. Yeah. Yeah. They will have this... It's it's easier to see if you're looking at the vocal recording, mm-hmm. but they will have a call for a badger yeah. versus, like, a coyote. Yeah. And it's like... Or even the researchers. <laughs> yeah, they were saying it'll be like something yeah. that has, like, four legs, mm-hmm. like wings or something like that. Yep. So they'll have that. So it's really interesting. And then they also, like... I think in Yosemite, they followed... Um, marmots and stuff and they were they were also cool and yeah. they're kind of interesting little animals i'm like you're kind of cool you just come out for a little bit and yeah. then you go back anyway yeah. another rodent <laughs> yeah i know rodents are people need to give more respect to rodents they're kind of really cool well they are the most diverse group of vertebrates there you go well mammals actually not vertebrates vertebrates is a fish okay <laughs> but um, we should move on into the things we really wanted to talk about. But if yes. you're going to watch those, at least there's like seven, I think, in the series. Probably don't watch Olympic. It's the one to avoid for right now. 
The other two are okay. Continue on. Yes. <laughs> so I am going to talk about some new discoveries of new species. Okay. And what they're being named. Because I love it. Okay. So some new species, this was last year, um, of new beetles have been discovered. And the researchers that discovered them decided to name them after three rare Pokemon. I was hoping it was going to be the actual beetles, but okay. <laughs> All right. So I am going to butcher this name, so I'm going to apologize right off the bat. Yun Xiao mm-hmm. is a PhD candidate from the Australian National University who discovered the species. Okay. And um, people that interviewed him asked him why he named them um, after Pokemon. Yeah. And he said he named them after Pokemon because he wanted to make a connection with popular culture to taxonomy to help raise people's concerns with biodiversity. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is smart because... Because um, you don't want to kill the thing named after the character that you want. Yes, like how there was, I think a year or two ago, a s- viper that was named after um, a character in Harry Potter. Mm, okay. Yeah. A Slytherin, probably. Yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> yep. He also said he um, appreciated the biodiversity in Pokemon, which is based in real-life biodiversity. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mm-hmm. really don't know my Pokemon very well, but yeah, because there is quite a bit. If you look at the series, it's like there's hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> and actually, I remember um, I saw a video of this teacher. She teaches kindergarten, mm-hmm. and she made a little lesson plan for students and surrounded Pokemon. Nice. Yeah, and I remember this is just a little digression, but somebody else commented like to actually teach them about like real biodiversity and mm-hmm. the. Evolu- you can teach them about evolution in that sense because another thing that she was like talking about you'll learn about their evolution series and it's like okay first off they're kindergartners yeah kindergartners literally don't need to learn anything serious they don't do you honestly elementary school is you don't really fo- should be focusing that until like second or third grade yeah that's how other countries do it and they f- far out compete us in academics yes well so that's my two cents. <laughs> now back to this. Yes. So he discovered the beetles in the Australian National Insect Collection and found that they were a new species of a genus that was studied by Darren Pollock. And he is a professor of biology at the Eastern New Mexico University. Okay. And they contacted each other, looked at the specimens, and they worked together on describing them. And they published their findings in the Canadian Entomologist, which is an academic journal. I do not know why. It's just everywhere. What? Like, the guy does not sound like a native Australian, but he's in Australia doing this, but they communicate with someone in New Mexico, and then we post it in Canada. <laughs> well, it's the There's Honestly, I suspect it has, because every journal has, because you have to pay in order to publish it. Mm-hmm. You have word limits, and you have an actual, you have, when you put in an abstract, there's a, a limit how much you can write, and then you get charged for how many pages you do. Mm, okay. So, it's cheaper, apparently? Yeah, because, okay. like, the American Entomologist is an organization you can join, and, like, when you're a member to that, you get discounts on publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe so you get... publications or to actually publish? To actually publish okay. your own paper. And then you... I believe if you're a member, you get one free pub- publication per year. So there's probably like reasons like that they chose that journal. 
and they probably sent it out to multiples in to get it published, and those were the ones that accepted it. Mm-hmm. It gets complicated. Okay. And now to the new species. They're in the genus Binburum. Binburum? Binburum. Binburum? Binburum. That's cool. <laughs> yes. How is this spelled? I'm B-I-N-B-U-R-R-U-M. I like it. Yes. So the new species, these are their scientific names. Binburum articuno. <laughs> I like that. Binburum Amultres and Benburum Zapdos. That's fun. Which holds a special place in my heart because those are among my favorites. Benburums? No, the Pokemon oh, that the they pick. I don't know any of those characters. I'm they're like bad they're among the three first legendary Pokemon's introduced in the series. Okay. They're the legendary birds if you know them: Articuno, Moltres, and Zapdos. I know Squirtle. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know Squirtle and Pikachu. Yeah, but it's like OG, and I love it. Okay. <laughs> It was more um, Yun's ideas to name them, but the other um, researcher has um, kids and remembers um, how they would sit down and watch the TV series yeah. a lot when they were younger. So, yeah. So, integration. Like when they were nope. younger. Remember how Pokemon Go, like, united the Oh, world? my gosh. I remember they were like, this is the closest we're ever going to get to world peace. <laughs> Dude, I, I I actually never got into it. Yeah, oh god. I wanted to, but it's like I'm always so busy. Yeah. <laughs> my sister though, out of everyone in my family, she was the most fanatic about it. Yeah. She finally took it off her phone, I think because she wasn't using it as much anymore and it takes up a lot of data. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but my one of my friends, um, she would also she would go with her mom to the grocery store just so she could collect mm-hmm. Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd go with friends who played it. And we go to like Balboa Park or like the zoo or the park, and they just have that looking for Pokemon all the time. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, continue. Yes. Yeah, so these are the three new species, and I just wanted last thing I want to point out is they were found in a collection that already existed. That's so weird. It actually happens a lot. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and also um, when you describe a species, this is something else I had to learn in systematics. Mm-hmm. You need a what's called a type specimen. And this kind of structure was very disorganized until a few decades ago, because a while ago, when you describe it, there's a designated type where you reference it, and that's how you determine this is the organism looking at it and stuff like that. Okay. Long ago, it's called a holotype. Yeah, holotype. And um, long ago, you were not required to do that. Oh. Yeah, so then you some specimens have just like a collection of specimens and then later on you have to go choose one and then sometimes there's problems with people um, that are describing species by looking at specimens and then there can be accounting errors where you already looked at a type specimen to describe a species but then somehow you forget and then you reference the same type and describe a new species yeah and then um a lot of times in phylogenetics what happens a lot is you discover that one species may actually belong into a different genus, and so that name is already taken, so then you have to rename the species. This is a lot. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of new species are actually discovered in museum collections. That's crazy. Yeah. It's not as a mess now, um, because we have computer databases and it's easy to look up names and stuff, but it's still occasionally accounting errors will happen. I mean, that'll yeah, forever. and that's actually part of the reason they chose these names because when you're naming a species, you have to make sure it's something that's not already occupied. And Pokemon weren't existent decades and decades ago, no, so they're not taken. This is true. 
This is true. <laughs> yeah. So if it discovered later on they're in a different genus, it's like, well, we just change the genus and keep the species epithet. <laughs> All right. That's yeah. so complicated. But um, also I find it weird that they discover things in collections that already exist. It's like you mm-hmm. didn't – it's like proofreading. Yeah. But, like, sometimes what also happens is, like, sometimes scientists have discovered um, what they think is a new species because – if it's color pattern or something, and then we find out later that it's actually the same species as something we've already described, mm-hmm. thing is, it changes depending on the season. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Yeah, and then that there's cool. other instances that are called polymorphisms, mm-hmm. where there's variety in, like, patterning and stuff in a species. California king snakes a perfect example. They have, like, banded patterns, these long, what's called a pinstripe pattern. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variation, but they're all the same species. They're not even separate subspecies. That is crazy, because they come in a massive variety of Mm -hmm. colors. King snakes are cool. Yes. Anyway, still a ton of rattlesnake pictures on all my hiking. (laughs) Just go hiking anywhere. Um, Okay, well, that's um, a little cry-cry. You know what else is popular besides Pokemon, Casey? What? Dogs. (laughs) Yes, they are. Um, and we're going to talk about, I, I really probably should have talked about it last week, even though it was still past the time. It was definitely past the time. Because this is May, Casey, and what happens in May, aside from Cinco de Mayo? It's Star Wars month, because May the 4th Oh, yeah. May the 4th. May the 4th. May the 4th be with you, and Revenge of the 5th, or something like that. Um, so, I... I'm doing our, our breed specific a little early today, and I am cho- I chose this breed based on the fact that they look like Chewbacca. So, um, also, my grandparents had a dog that I'm pretty sure was mixed with this dog. So our breed. Did- what? But you have to see pictures of them where they really look like Chewbacca. This is weird because this what is the show the- standards. But like that's you- show standard. Yeah, but when you see them like normally, they look like Chewbacca. I'll post a Chewbacca looking one. What? Anyway, Dog people, you need help. Um, they're really cute, though, and if I had one, I would definitely dress it like Chewbacca. <sighs> anyway, so we are talking, of course, about the Brussels Griffon, which is also fun because back when we worked our retail job, I had someone who came in with, I don't know if it was pure, it was probably mixed, and I guessed it right, and she was, like, shocked. Oh, really? Nobody ever got it. Anyway, um, so just so you know, they rank 98 popularity out of 190. I wonder why. <laughs> They're cute, okay? I've never they seen look one. Like Chewbacca. <laughs> they are seven to ten inches high, and they weigh eight to ten pounds. I could pick that up. I could pick it up last <laughs> week um, or a couple weeks ago. Life expectancy twelve to fifteen years, and they are in the toy group. So we're gonna scroll on down to their history here first, and of course, I will link the AKC page for you. Um, this one's kind of long, but of course it's wonderful because it's the AKC and we just always depend on them yeah. to entertain. So, um, Griffon type dogs were well known in Europe for centuries. In Van Eyck, I've never heard of this author, sorry, celebrated 1434 portrait. Oh, this is not an author, he's a painter. <laughs> My bad. Good. Um, 1434 portrait of the Arnolfini couple. Don't, I don't know this portrait. We glimpse distance ancestor of the Griff. They short it to Griff. Love it. <laughs> it's a small Griffon-type dog 
I don't know if it's Griffin or Griffon, but I'm going to say Griffon because it's a dog thing and I'm sure it's supposed to be fancy. I assume that they would not name after a mythical creature. No, probably not. And it doesn't look like a Griffin. No. So. <laughs> uh, Griffon-type dog with a longer muzzle than today's flatter-faced, pouty-lipped version. Um, the Griff story, however, oh my gosh, properly what's... begins in Brussels, Belgium's capital city. In the early 1800s, it was then that the Griff began his rise from rough-and-tumble rat dog to sophisticated laptop companions. I don't know why they're laptops. What? The coachmen of Brussels commonly kept small terrier-type dogs to keep down the rat population in their stables. They were typically Affenpinscher-like dogs, known as Griffons de Curie, I'm going to say is what that is, or wire-coated stable dogs, because make it boring. Um, the hack drivers experimented with various crosses to improve their dogs. No written records of these breedings survive, but dog people have surmised. Of course they did. <laughs> that the pug, English toy spaniel, an old and oh my god, an old Belgian breed called the Brabancon. Never heard of that. And perhaps even the Yorkshire Terrier will are, were, were all part of the genetic mix that produced the Brussels Griffon. I mean, you gotta have a pug to get that face. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> nothing else gives you that face. Um, and then the turning point in Griff history, Casey, came in the 1870s when the dog-loving Henrietta Maria, queen of the Belgians, took a liking to the breed. With royal patronage, the Griff's future was assured. <laughs> they became all the rage among the Queen's courtiers and kennel keepers of the upper classes further refined the breed, making the body smaller and the face more human-like. Why? Anyway, the royal boost received by the breed led to international interest, and Griffs were exported to England and America. The AKC registered its first Griff in 1910, before the Titanic sank. <laughs> um, as is the case with so many European breeds, the two world wars decimated the Griff population. That's really sad. If not for the dedication of U.S. and British enthusiasts, the breed might not have survived. The Brussels Griffon won millions of new fans in 1997 when a spicy grift named Spicy Griff, excuse me, named Jill upstaged. Jack Nicholson in the hit movie As Good As It Gets. I don't think that's accurate. What? But um, I barely remember the dog in that, and I don't really remember that movie very well. But anywho. Um, so, yeah. And they are, sorry, they are they are described as loyal, alert, and curious. And I wanted to say, I just like this part. With this breed, you get a big personality in a 5 to 15 pound package. They already said it was 10 pounds. This is lies. AKC, get it together. That's um, the average. Yeah. Yeah, it is the average. I did. Yeah, it would be, but still, they said up to 10 pounds. No, it's up to 15 pounds. <laughs> anyway, so with this breed, you get a big personality in a 5 to 15 pound package. One look into his big human-like eyes, and you'll be smitten. I will be disturbed if I look into a dog and see human-like eyes. <laughs> Griff's come in four colors, red, black, and reddish brown, called Belgul? <laughs> Belge? I don't know. Um, black and tan, and black and black. Um, and in smooth coats, like a pug, or rough coats, like a schnauzer, their black muscle and whiskers, uh, muzzle, excuse me, and whiskers earn them the nickname Bearded Dog in old folk songs. I have read that as old folks songs. <laughs> anyway, uh. and we're moving 
on, moving on, moving. Anyway, um, they're alert, sociable, easily trained, all these good things. We don't care about that part. Uh, skipping ahead. As far as care and everything goes, grooming, depending on which type you have, um, it can change. So with a smooth coat of Griffon, weekly brushing daily during shedding season. I don't know if they shed enthusiastically like the Great Pyrenees. Good Lord. <laughs> which is usually a week or two into the spring and then again in the fall. And an occasional bath will help to remove dirt and loose hair and keep the dog looking his best. Rough-coated Griffons do not shed. Many have their hair, except for the distinctive beard, clipped short either by their owner or a professional groomer. I don't know why they need to say that. Um, and then, of course, trim the nails regularly. That's like all dogs. Uh, they only need moderate exercise if you want to get a Brussels. Uh, Griffon, I guess I should say it's Griffon, not a Brussels, since that's like a city. <laughs> Although a lot of dogs are named after locations. Yeah. Um, they need at least a half hour of moderate exercise a day to stay healthy and happy. They love to romp and play and are happiest when doing activities together with their people. Why this is worded this way. A game of chasing the ball. Why not call it fetch? <laughs> or just like chase? Um, or play ball? Like all the options. Of chasing the ball is fun for both dogs and owner. Their intelligence and trainability mean that many Brussels Griffons excel in canine events such as obedience, agility, and tracking. See, it's language like that makes me think the AKC is run by British aristocrats that don't know how to talk to common people. Yes, but American versions. Yes. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, training, early socialization, that's every dog, and puppy training and all that stuff. Um, they don't say that they're super difficult. It's not like the Jindo where it's a little sketch. Um, <laughs> so they're pretty good. And uh, health, let's see if they, I actually didn't look at this one yet. Oh, they do have issues. Okay, cool, great. So um, I just, this bothers me. When they refer to them as stock. It's stock? An it's not stock. Stop. It's a living thing. It's a doggy. We refer to lots of animals as stock. Yeah, livestock that yeah. you eat, but we don't eat dogs. Not here. Um, for health conditions, um, they have health conditions such as heart problems, eye defects such as cataracts, and orthopedic problems such as patella luxation and hip dysplasia. How did they get hip dysplasia? That's a big dog thing. Mm -hmm. um, and like, all oh, flat face breeds, they suck at existing. It's, that's how <laughs> I it, let's be real. But um, Griffon, uh, Brussels Griffons can experience breathing problems in sunny, hot, or humid weather, um, and usually snore. Oh my gosh. And their ears should be checked regularly for signs of infection, and teeth, that's all normal stuff. But anyway, their big things are going to be ophthalmologist evaluations, patella evaluation, and hip evaluations. Those are your main things you're looking out for with the Brussels Griffon. But obviously, you will see a picture of them. Um, and they look like Chewbacca, and I'll get one that really looks like Chewbacca, and sometimes people dress them up like Chewbacca, and I love it. Two of my friends actually named their dogs, um, Chewbacca. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a friend, I think they wound up adopting it, and they, I think it was Chewbacca, but they called him yeah. Chewie. Yeah, they called, they both call him Chewie. Um, yeah. one's a golden retriever, the other one's a German Shepherd mix. Yep. But anyway, so that is the Brussels Griffon, which I'm sure you were not familiar with before, because they're not well. super popular. But I, wonder um, why. I think I only knew that because my grandparents saw it. I was like, what are you? <laughs> I'm like, you're clearly a mix because she's too big to be a Brussels, but she has that face, but she wasn't quite as smashed. Now I'm thinking, it's like, I don't think I have any relatives that have had uncommon dog breeds. You're all basic. I know we're basic. Yeah. Especially me. <laughs> anyway. So that is our pupper, but it is time to get into our favorites, and this was Casey's choice. Obviously, 
Um, also, go ahead, Casey. First of all, tell us what, what the category is. I went with beetles. So Casey has on multiple occasions said that like beetles are like the most diverse, so many, like what millions or whatever. Uh, Currently there's around 400,000 described yeah, species of beetles. Of beetles. So I go to look at the notes and he has put for our picks category, favorite beetle. And I responded with, there are so many beetles. <laughs> and we will come back to them again. Oh my gosh. Because there's so many. So I went super basic on this because I was just like, I don't know. Sure, that's cool. <laughs> we will come back to the one that I almost chose though at some point because that is really cool. Like legit. I'm but trying I'm to remember. say it now. I'm trying to remember what you this said. This one, this one. Oh yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, okay, but Casey, tell us about your favorite beetle. Yes, mine is the Olone Tiger Beetle. I like the fact that it has tiger in its name and we can use that when we do one that has to have an animal in an, we haven't done that yet, we should do that. Oh yeah? An animal that has another animal in its name. Yes. Anyway, continue. So its scientific name is Sicandella oloni. Sicandella? Yes, Sicandella. Wow. Yes, they belong to the family Carabidae. Those are the ground beetles. Okay. They are one of the largest insect families with about 34,000 species of worldwide. Of they are, yep. <laughs> Tiger beetles make up the subfamily Sicandellinae, and that's only about 2,000 species. Okay, oh, only. <laughs> And they get the name tiger beetles because they are fast and voracious predators. Oh, <laughs> cool. Yes. What are they eating? You're going to tell us. Other insects, sometimes arachnids. Oh, okay. Yes, so they have long and slender legs, which allows them to run down prey quickly. I just imagine them like... <laughs> They're very fast. They're one of the fastest terrestrial insects. Okay. I've Unfortunately, I have not seen one yet. I want them to do like Mythbuster style, like put one of the like measuring mm -hmm. things behind them so they can like track how fast they go. They probably have. I you just need to find that anyway. Yeah. Continue. Yes, they also have very large eyes relative to other ground beetles, which okay. gives them very good vision. But not as cool as the mantis shrimp. Yeah. Continue. And they have large, strong mandibles that allow them to cut up their prey. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have picked up several ground beetles. I'm probably if I picked up a tiger beetle, <laughs> give me a nasty bite. Wow. Yep. Um, and they larvae live in vertically oriented burrows. Vertically oriented burrows? Yes, they're straight up. Weird. Okay. There's a reason to that because okay. they have a flat head. Okay. They stick to the surface. And so when they feel an insect walking by, they'll spring out, grab it, and pull it down into its burrow. Okay. Yep. But that's not the larvae. That's, that's the, the larvae. I'm so confused. So when it's a larva, they yeah. live in vertically oriented burrows. Yeah, yeah. And they have a flat head. And that's so they blend in with right. the surface. And when they feel an insect walking around near them, they, just pop, up they pop up and get it. But are the larvae each in their own? Mm -hmm. Okay, they're each in their own burrow. Okay. Yes. All right, continue. I will. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> yeah. There's still quite a few insects that do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, they are diurnal primarily and most active on warm sunny days. And the adult stage is typically spotted from January till May. Okay. Yep. And they prefer to live in bare ground habitat, which make, which is because they they're fast, yes, yeah. mm -hmm. fast active predators. Okay. So they need that open space. And they also need it for mate, finding mates. They bask because... Most insects can't produce their own body heat, so they have to warm up in the sun. Okay. 
And they are actually a federally endangered species. Oh. Yes, they are endemic to California. Okay. And found nowhere else on the planet. Wow, that's yep. crazy. Okay. Yes. And all known populations are exclusively found in Santa Cruz County. How weird. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they think they used to exist in other counties too, or? It's probable, but currently all known populations okay. exclusively in, in Santa, Santa Cruz. Cruz. Yeah. You also, if you go there, you'll find in tiger beetle habitat, there'll be signs telling you to slow down to five miles per hour when you're riding a bike. Because that way, they will fly away, because they have, beetles have wings. They're not good flyers, so they don't do it often, but they can fly away. If you slow down, they'll fly away, but not as far, so they don't use up as many energy. And oh, okay. That's safer for them. Okay. And they are threatened due to habitat loss. Increase in invasive plant species and lack of land management to maintain bare ground. Okay, yep, mm -hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> yes, and this is federally protected and not in California because my state is stupid. Right, and they don't see insects as something that is worth mm -hmm. protection. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the Olon tiger beetle. Okay, well, I of course went off of looks. I almost <laughs> saw something different, but. I also, I guess I haven't seen it. I thought maybe I've seen this before, but I guess I haven't. <laughs> um, anyway, I chose the jewel beetle. They're so pretty. It's like multicolored beautifulness. Yes. Kind of like the peacock mantis shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Jewel beetles make up the family Bupresidae. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> they are, oh, sorry, there are nearly 15,000 species across the world. Get their name because they have iridescent exoskeleton that's somewhat, that somewhat reminiscent of that of jewels. I feel like that's a stretch, but either way, they're real pretty. Okay, mm -hmm. you'll see pictures. Oh, man, my, my two picks these last two weeks, so pretty. Yes. And they both have iridescence. That's why they're so pretty. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, the iridescence is the phenomenon which, in which, excuse me, the luminous colors seem to change depending on the angle you're viewing it from. If you try to view them, they fly at your face. <laughs> Just warning you. In other words, what you are seeing is not their true color, but an optical illusion produced by reflection of light. Everything is an optical illusion based on a reflection of light. Yes, but it changes with the angle, so it's not That's their true. actually color. The, the one that I particularly like... <laughs> Is that I will hopefully post that picture. Up, is um, I had to take a guess. <laughs> is the Stemocera? Oh boy, Aqui Aquisignata. <laughs> yep, that's what we're going with. They're found in South Asia in countries like India, Thailand, and Myanmar. They are thirty to fifty millimeters long. They have a metallic emerald green iridescent color. So pretty. Sometimes jewel beetles are also called metallic wood boring beetles. That's weird because females will lay eggs in soil near plants and decaying wood. When larvae hatch, they will stay in the soil for a while feeding on the roots of the plants. Then larvae will burrow through the roots of the plants or into deep logs in some species and larvae will return to the soil to bury themselves to populate into the adult stage. Pupate. Pupate, sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I made that populate. <laughs> well, pupate into the adult stage. Um, for a long time, it was not known why these beetles evolved this iridescent exoskeleton, as it would seem to make them obvious to predators. 
However, some studies <laughs> suggest that this iridescence may actually help them to avoid predators. What? Researchers found that both birds and humans had a difficult time spotting the wing cases of these beetles when placed on plants in complex natural forest settings. That kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Their iridescent color also makes them valuable to collectors. People will often collect elytra? Elytra. elytra. elytra which is the second hard pair of wing, and use them to make jewelry. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Um, also, was that actually thing or was that just a TV show? I think mm. it was just a TV show. There was a point where like having like beetle or roach pendants like encrusted with jewels was the thing. Yeah. Huh. It was just a TV show. I don't. There's. Because it was um, like a very expensive beetle that had walked away. Yeah. Anywho. But yeah, I remember I looked at some of the pictures. Was like, where's the beetle? <laughs> Oh, really? Yes, because, like, sometimes when there's, like, sun shining on plants, there's, like, maybe get, they're kind of reflective of the yeah. sunlight, and that's kind of how it works. Okay. So it matches, like, the complex visual cues in um, the forest. When I first read about it, it I thought um, that it had to do with ultraviolet light because several bird species can see in UV light. But it's like, no, it turns out it's just straight up, uh, cryptic camouflage and it's like it's cool. then I looked at the pictures like I can see it now <laughs> not I really but it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all yeah. clear because I cannot see it <laughs> anyway they're really pretty and obviously we'll be posting pictures of um, both of our animals all the animals we're talking about today mm -hmm. but that brings us to our animal of the week this one's really unique y'all <laughs> I think you've probably actually heard of it before yep. but um, our animal of the week is the water bear. The water bear. Tell also, us about them. Yes, so I'm going through a bit more classification because we've never talked about this group before. No. <laughs> so these guys come from the phylum tardigrata. Tardigrata? Tardigrata. Okay. Because these are also called tardigrades. Okay. Yep. And the order is Paracella. Paracella? Paracella. Aragata Paracella? No, I already messed that up. <laughs> That's okay. We'll move on. Yes. And the family is Macrobiotidae. Okay. And the genus is Paramacrobiotis. Paramacrobiotis. Yes. And I can't go to a classification further than that because the species I'm talking about was literally discovered seven months ago. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Continue. And I cannot find a formal description of it okay. that gives a scientific name. So, so tell us about them then. Yes. So. In a non-scientific way. <laughs> I will try. Okay. So tardigrades are a, as a group, are a cosmopolitan species and found all over the world from the Arctic to Antarctica. Wow. Yes. They are especially common in lichens and mosses, and this is why they are also called moss piglets. That's cute. Okay. Yes. And in my opinion, because they get the name water bear because apparently they, some people thought they resemble bears, I think moss piglets is more appropriate. Yeah, they don't really resemble yeah. bears. Yeah, but this species... I what, think they resemble a croissant. A croissant? <laughs> <laughs> they do. Anyway, okay. continue. Um, but this species was discovered on the campus of the Indian Institute of Science. Okay. Mm -hmm. And these guys live to be about two and a half years, sort of, and I'll get into that later. Okay. And... It is the first microscopic animal we have talked about. Yeah. <laughs> Average size for a tardigrade is about 0.5 millimeters. So crazy. Yes. The largest species get to be 1.5 millimeters. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
and depending on this, they feed on a wide variety depending on the species you look at, but primarily they feed on cellular fluids. Plant cellular fluids? It depends. Um, oh, some okay. are herbivorous and will feed on bacteria, algae, and mosses. Okay. But then the, some of the larger species are actually predators and will feed on protozoans, which are like single-celled um, amoeba-like things, mm -hmm. nematodes, also known as roundworms, uh, rotifers. I don't know what that is. Yeah, most people don't, but they're cool. <laughs> and um, smaller species of tardigrades. Oh, no, more yes. Okay. Yes. Now, tardigrades are not a particularly diverse group. There's only about a thousand species that have been described. Okay. But on average, there's about 20 new species discovered each year. Whoa. Yes, but it kind of makes sense because they're microscopic, they're so there's probably yeah. a lot of species <laughs> have yet to be described. And their closest relatives are the arthropods and anicophorans. Those are also called velvet worms. Okay, I don't remember what the arthropods are. Those are worms? Arthropods are like insects and crustaceans. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Yes, and the anicophora are velvet worms. They kind of look like worms, except they have legs and little antenna. They're really cool. They're one of my favorite animals. You have a lot of favorite animals. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> However, some studies have shown that they may be more closely related to nematodes, um, which are the things that crawl around inside you and kill you. <laughs> Cool. I'm Great. Not all of them. A lot of them are good paras good as parasites and won't kill you. Okay. But yeah. Um, however, I looked into this, um, and it seems that the relationship that they find between tardigrades and nematodes may be an artifact known as long branch attraction. And that's this thing in systematics when you're looking at organisms, and they may have diverged a long time ago, but then have evolved as a result of convergent evolution, similar morphological structures or strategies in order to survive. Because okay. most nematodes are also microscopic, so the when they looked at different genes that don't evolve as quickly, they have found that they don't find them to be closely related to nematodes. So okay. the evidence suggests that they're most closely related to the arthropods and the velvet worms. Okay. Although the relationship between those three is up for debate. Yes. Microscopic debate. Okay. Yeah. Well, then. They're, they're not all microscopic. No, only the tardigrades okay. in that group um, are microscopic. But it's very interesting. I had to read an article about it on a whole synopsis of the studies, um, which is a bit more difficult because they're microscopic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And this group is commonly, of those three, is called the panarthropods. Mm -hmm. And these guys, just like all the their relatives, are belong to a group of animals known as ectozoans. Which are? Animals that molt. Okay. Yes, so All they- animals molt, molt. Yes, several do, um, but they have a chitinous exoskeleton that they have to shed in order what to grow. Chitinous? Chitin is a um, carbohydrate. Oh, okay. That, um, kind of like cellulose, except it has a different chemical bonds and structures, right mm -hmm. but yeah. And it's also what makes up the exoskeleton of nematodes and um, arthropods. Okay. But these guys only need to milk about three to six times before they reach maturity. Okay. 
And their nervous system is interesting and resembles that of arthropods, like insects. Okay. Which is one of the pieces of evidence on one they're related, in that they have a central brain, air quotes, because okay. it's not really as complex to be called a brain. Ooh. So what it's actually called is a cerebral ganglion. And ganglia, yeah. which is the plural, uh, basically just means bundle of nerves. <laughs> like, I'm just a ganglia. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, like my professor taught me is like think of it as a gang of nerd nerves. <laughs> gang of nerves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then this leads to what's called the subesophageal ganglia, which controls the esophagus when they're eating. This is kind of like the is this like the manowar and stuff like that kind of? No, because this is an individual organism. Okay. But they have several separate ganglia that control different parts of the body. Okay, so weird. Okay. It's how a cockroach is able to move and do all of its bodily functions when you cut off its head. Okay. Yeah. And they have a similar system here, but there, eventually, it splits into two ventral nerve cords that lead to the other ganglia in the body. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that's how, one way, they're similar uh, anatomically to insects and other arthropods. I, I did not know any of this. Yes. It's cool. Okay. <laughs> Yes. And several terrestrial species are what's called parthenogenic. Which is? They don't have to mate in order to reproduce. Okay. Okay. Yes. They basically reproduce with themselves to produce their own offspring. Ooh, weird. Yes. And in some species, there are no males at all. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I remember when I've never seen these under a microscope in person, but I've seen videos of them, and I noticed that they always look like they can't walk well. Oh, I mean, they look like croissants. I have found out why. Okay. Because their legs, when they, at the end of them, they have four to six claws that are made of chitin. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen, like, a deer try to walk on ice, you can understand why. Because it's a slippery surface that they can't grip. Oh, oh yeah. okay. Because okay. normally they will use these claws to grip onto the textured surface of mosses and lichens. Mm, okay, okay, okay. But on a glass, glass petri dish, they can't move oh, so well. No. They're just like, beep, beep, beep. like what's happening? Yeah. And they have it. Mouth is kind of interesting in that it's just a tube. Interesting being creepy, yes. but okay, yeah. And on the sides of this tube, oh, there's these little stylets, and what they do is they pierce the cell membrane or cell wall of whatever they're eating, and then they just slurp Suck up the cell's fluids. It's cool. It's like a mosquito, but two yes. thingies. And what they're most famous for is being hands down the toughest animal on the planet. Yes. Yes, because they can survive a thousand times the radiation a human can. Which is insane. And they can survive being put in the vacuum of space. They have done this. They brought them back down, yes. and they started laying eggs. How? We'll get into that. Oh my god! Okay. They can survive pressure. But I just mean like, how do they even do? Like literally, how do they put them in the vacuum of space and then bring them back in? Because in the vacuum of space, they're out there, not in anything. <laughs> so how do you get them again? They just like shoot them out, and they just try to scoop them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't read that much into it. Like, but, but how would you? Do well, that? we can make vacuums as well. <laughs> Okay, I guess. Yep. So they just try to replicate the vacuum of space. Yes. Anyway, okay, continue. I did that in a physics class That's once. We, yep. we did the marshmallow thing. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yes. They can survive pressure six times that of what is found at the bottom of the ocean. 
and they can survive going without food or water for 30 years. <laughs> That's crazy. Yes, and they have been. Do they been, get water separately, or do they get water just from the fluids of the... Stuff? They live in pretty moist environments, okay. so that's how they get it, as well as how they eat. Mm -hmm. And they have been surviving extreme temperatures as low as negative 200 degrees Celsius. Okay. And above 100 degrees Celsius. I forget that conversion, but that's real hot. It's above boiling. Yeah, that's hot. <laughs> That's insane. Yes. And it varies the extent from species to species, mm -hmm. but they ex survive temperatures beyond any other animal can survive. It's crazy. Yes. And now, time to discuss how they survive these extremes. <laughs> All right. Get on me. It's a process called cryptobiosis. What does that mean? Basically, the animal dies and comes back to life. And I'll explain oh. how. Okay. <laughs> when the Typically, when the environment dries up, they become stressed, and then they will expel nearly all the water in their body. Okay. Then they retract their head and their legs and turn into a little ball. Okay. And when they roll up into this ball, they enter a dormant state. I was saying they must go dormant. Okay, yeah. And they cells won't even age when they're in this state. Whoa. Yes. They just <laughs> stop they functioning. Freeze. They just pause. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And water, when water returns to the environment, they will... They'll absorb the water, it just roll on out and act like nothing happened. <laughs> just continue on their merry way. Funny. Yes. And one of the more interesting things is the fact with radiation. Because how radiation okay. kills you is it destroys your DNA and stops functioning. Mm -hmm. Now, how these guys deal with that is they have a protein that is called DSUP. And what that stands for is damage suppressor. Okay. It is a protein that binds to the DNA of the cells to prevent them from getting any damage while they're in this state. So, but that happens all the time or only if they get exposed to radiation? Whenever they go into this state. Okay. Yeah, that's how they survive. Whenever they do their ball state. Yep. Okay. And they can even survive when they're not, um, haven't been induced into the cryptobiosis their survival rates not as well but they can still survive extreme temperatures so if and the other conditions if everything's fine but they just get there over in chernobyl um or fukushima um and they just get hit with a bunch of radiation is that the point where then they would do that or would they need to be in that state before the radiation hit so in order for them to have a higher survival rate they would want to be in a state of cryptobiosis beforehand it has much higher rates of survival, okay. but they still would be some that survive in that instance. Okay. Yeah. Would that cue cryptobiosis, though, if they got exposed to radiation? If they enter into an environment that's been hit by a radioactive event, yeah. most likely it would be dehydrated, okay. um, and then they would start entering into that state. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And now that's generally for the whole group of tardigrades as a whole. Okay. Now time to get into this new species. Oh okay, yeah. Yes. So this species comes from the class Eutardigrata. So they are basically some plump-looking things. Okay. <laughs> and don't have any spikes or armored plate like some of the other classes. Okay. Now, many um, labs have what are called germicidal ultraviolet lamps. Okay. We use these in order to disinfect surfaces, especially to kill um, 
hard-to-kill viruses and bacteria. And um, and the, they also use this in experiment with bacteria, some nematodes, as well as this new species. Okay. It this lamp, the UV light killed the bacteria and the nematodes after just five minutes. Okay. And then they also tested it against another tardigrade species known called Hypis Hypsibius exemplaris. And they started observing death in that species at about 15 minutes, and then most died after 24 hours. Uh, of being continuously exposed or after? I believe exposure. it was just one dose. Okay. Yeah. This new species, mm -hmm. approximately 60% survived more than 30 days after exposure. Do, did they stop tracking it after that point, or did they die after the 30 days? I think they just stopped tracking. Okay. So these would take over the world. Yeah. Tardigrades will be the last animal. <laughs> they will probably be around until the sun finally until explodes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when they so they decide to observe the East tardigrades under the UV light. Okay. And this species is biofluorescent. Oh, okay. So when it gets hit with this light, it emits this blue light. Okay. Yeah. Um, so scientists thought that was interesting so they decided to extract the pigments that um, allow them to be fluorescent mm -hmm. and then they coated the other tardigrade species and a s nematode its model organism c elegans what's that it's a nematode a c elegans is a nematode yes it's a model organism it's a species of nematode okay yes and i will just point this shows how much i am a nerd because the article that posted this called it an earthworm and it's not an earthworm you tell him Yes. <laughs> I'm so nerdy. <laughs> yes. So these, and they subjected these um, coded individuals as well as non-coded individuals to okay. the same treatment. All right. And the coded specimens had nearly twice the survival rate of the controls. Weird. Okay. Yeah. So researchers have suggested that this species probably evolved their fluorescence to deal with the high amount of UV ray um, that they experience. And that is very common when um, southern India gets its very hot, dry days. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. So they are able to convert the harmful UV light into harmless blue fluorescent light. That's crazy. Yes. And that is the water bear. The water bear, but a specific new water bear. That's yes. even more fancy. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, that is... Probably the most unique animal we have covered, I think. Thus far. It's pretty... <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, They're one of my favorites. You still have no choice coming up. Oh, man. What's <laughs> All right. Um, well, this is a little different, but um, why was the little bear cub spoiled? I do not know. Because his mom pandaed to his every need. Good Lord. It's uh, pretty good. Anyway, um, all right, well that brings us to this challenge and we were gonna do something different, but there's a reason we did the cups thing first because there was a good chance we would fail and we did. So yes, watch us fail again. Yep, we only have like, what, five left? Yes, and we can't even do that. Nope, please better not take us the entire end yeah. of May. All right, I will go first because I have three yes. things in my cup. All right, ready, go. All right. Okay. Um, think of a gorilla, and it has this thing in front of it. If they're not up in the mountains. 
Lolan. Yes, but now it's a different animal. Lolan Paca. Yay! Yes, because you've seen that one before. <laughs> Let's see. Um, so you just mentioned this in the joke. A uh, panda. Yes, and it's not the giant, but the red panda. Yes. That one we haven't had yet. Seriously. <laughs> oh, okay. This is um an arachnid that you really like, and you have some, or you're observing some. Scorpion. Charlotte's web. Sorry. Oh, Charlotte's web. Yes. Or breaver. Yeah. The, the arachnid after that. Just no. Or breaver spider. Thank you. <laughs> I never call it. But... It's the bird. Bird of God. <laughs> okay. Oh, how have you not heard of these? <laughs> Just do something like that sound like it, or have nothing to do with the animal, but like something different. I tried. Oh. Okay. So you know it's not south, but northern. And first part, you're playing cards. Yes. Cardinal. Yes! A cardinal. I've never seen a yellow cardinal. Really? I've only seen red cardinal. Go, go, go. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Think Germany. Uh-huh. Oh, and God. think trees that um, have needles. Pine? Yes. And um, I don't know what kind of animal that is. Think of sort of like a rodent. Oh, pine bull. Yay! But think Germany. You have to get a that. A variant? Yes! <laughs> Did we do it? Did we? We did! Oh my god! <laughs> Thank god! Ah. That was so bad! Okay, Cardinals are also a um, sports team. Ah, oh, that's where I. I only know them from the bird, but I remember it. Yeah, I heard it from somewhere else. Sin or, I think it's a church thing. Yeah, a, card a cardinal isn't yeah, a card. Yeah. I remember one time um, I was working <laughs> cashier and it's like I was try I had to get because for some reason cashiers can't do change when they're not paying for something. Like they have a twenty, they want oh, two yeah. tens. Mm -hmm. It's like so um, I had to call the manager up to try to break it for them and it's like they were taking forever. I was losing my mind. It's like, you know what? Emergency button I <gasps> and then one of my coworkers was like, oh, the cardinal sin. <laughs> Yes. We only had to take an extra thing oh to do Oh, my it. gosh. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, all right. Well, we'll see what animals are putting there next time. Maybe not things like yes. northern cardinals <laughs> or Bavarian pine bowls. Um, all right. Well, that, that brings us to the end of episode 41. Yes, it does. Um, and next week is our listener's choice. It's going to be something cute. Yes. I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be real cute, and they're all cool. And I can't wait for you to see their little faces because I think they're all adorable. <laughs> anyway, um, so that'll be a really sweet one. And then we don't we don't know what Casey has in store for his last <laughs> one for our final animal of the week. Yes. For season one, it's crazy. And then next month we start back into South America. We we explore some more cool animals <laughs> there. Woohoo! But until then, thank you for joining us on episode forty-one. As always, we're your host Sally and Casey, and we will catch you on next week's episode. Have a fantabulous week.